the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. As we have been doing since March, we're talking about COVID-19 here in the Cleveland, Cuyahoga County area. And with us tonight is a returning guest. We have Dr. Ann Carroll, an ER doctor, a frontline practitioner. We, we get an update whenever we can from Dr. Carroll. Dr. Carroll, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for asking me. Well, thank you for being a frontline person who's right there where all the COVID meets the healthcare professionals. Uh, how are we doing so far? We are reading about the uptick in cases. Are you seeing it in actuality? Actually, over the last, I would say, 10 days, I've seen quite a spike in the number of COVID cases. Um, people are testing positive, but they're not as sick as they used to be. We've seen a lot of sick patients. I've only had to admit one person who did quite well, was discharged within three days. Uh, part of the issue is um, a lot of people are getting tested, and um, they're not symptomatic, but now we're, we can test everybody, and they're coming back positive. The question that comes from that is if it's a true positive, because they do something when they, uh, when they do the PCR test and they spin it, and there's some authorities that are, are questioning the number of times that they spin it that they could, at, at 40, 35, or 40 spins, they could still detect uh, viral uh, fragments, but it's not infectious. It could not give you disease. And they're saying that you know, they think that the PCR test should be, which is the gold standard at this point, should not be spun as many times so that we could get a whole virus to see if, in fact, it is infectious. That's, that's what we're looking at now. But... Um, the good news is, uh, while we're seeing more tests, uh, more positives, we're not seeing as many, uh, more, the uh, death rate is down. So that's good. Well, how do you attribute the decrease in death rate due to treatment, uh, prompt identification, or to the weakening of the virus? Um, I, think, I, I think it's a combination. When the virus first reared its ugly head, it was most virulent, and so the most uh, susceptible population uh, uh, got the virus and they died. Um, over time, it mutates. So uh, there's a combination of the mutation of the virus and was that much smarter about how to treat it. Um, in the early days, everybody was being intubated, and that was almost a death wish uh, in and of itself. And now we let the patient be somewhat hypoxic in the high 80s and carry them through, giving them dexamethasone, giving them remdesivir if they need it, um, doing different things. Some, some people are getting the antibodies, but there's some authorities that don't think that works as well, the plasma antibodies. But people are getting treated sooner, and they're doing much better. When you see people come into the emergency room, and you strongly suspect they have COVID. Well, 
first off with a positive COVID test. And let me back up a little bit. When they come in, are they tested for COVID immediately or do they have to see a doctor first? Uh, we test them. They don't need to see it. They come in, they think they're sick. We test them for COVID. We do that. That's the only way you're going to control the disease is to know who has it. Um, you know, the, as I said, the PCR is the gold standard, but some authorities now are looking at doing the antigen. Um, the issue, you can do the antigen. It's most successful if you're in a population where you know that there's a, a high percentage of the disease. So you could do an antigen test and get a quick result. But if it's positive, that's helpful. If it's negative, it doesn't tell you anything because there's a high, you decrease sensitivity, but you have to exchange for frequency of the test. So you would probably, we're looking at doing it every single day, doing an antigen. And that's why you can buy this now uh, in the pharmacy without a doctor's script. We're looking at the patients. An I, yes. Excuse me? Hello? Oh, the antigen. The antigen test. Yes. Yes. That's correct. The antigen. And to do it at home and to do it every day. And the viral load, when it first becomes positive on an antigen, is around 56,000 is the viral load. That's not infectious, but it tells us that you have it, and that's when you quarantine. So you get a handle on the transmission of the disease, not just diagnosing it, but preventing it from spreading. So that's another way of, of addressing this, this problem. Of course, now the vaccine is out, which is which is terrific, but people have to understand that when you get the vaccine, you're probably not going to be protected from this COVID virus for at least two weeks. So you still have to wear a mask, wash your hands, social distance, all the other things that are good practice in controlling this uh, virus. Do, do we know whether or not when people uh, have in, this, in the following order, they have a, a vaccination and then they test positive, for coronavirus because it was an important day. Are, are they likely to still be spreading or will that well, tamp it down because they have the vaccination? Uh, no, the, the feeling is that just because you've had the COVID vaccine doesn't mean you can't uh, transmit the disease. You could still test positive because you have it. Um, people ask the question, well, if I had COVID, should I get the vaccine? And the authorities are saying, yes, you should, but you should wait 90 days after you've had COVID and then get the vaccine. And um, so that's why everyone is still encouraging people to wear a mask because they can be, they can be carrying the, vac uh, the virus and transmit it to other people. So if uh, I would have COVID and I got through it, they would want me to wait for 90 days before I got a vaccination? That's correct. I heard that correctly. So then we have a category of people who uh, maybe had it, they had no symptoms, and they end up uh, not knowing they had COVID. They get the vaccination. Is there any danger for that person getting a vaccination? I haven't heard that there is, no. I mean, the, um, there are side effects to the vaccine on all comers, and uh, they actually started vaccinating individuals in the UK, in the United Kingdom, and from what yeah. they've seen, they've advised people who have any significant allergies not to get the vaccine. That's from the early test uh, <clears throat> vaccination program that they've had. I don't think that's unusual. That you probably see that with any vaccine, but this is so new on the market 
uh, that everyone's sharing what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. do, do you foresee us having sort of mass inoculation clinics where we're running 12-hour days where people are coming through by the hundreds? Or is it going to continue to be on an individual basis to health care providers like we've been seeing so far? Well, uh, everyone wants that I've spoken to or calling. They want to have the vaccine. Uh, next week, I believe it's next week, Ohio is going to start getting the vaccine. It's going to be distributed to the different hospitals. And um, we're an emergency room, so we probably people probably won't be coming to us, but they're going to set up different clinics around the city where people will go and can get the vaccine. And I imagine it's just not going to be a daytime sort of thing. They'll probably extend it into the evening so we can vaccinate as many people who want to get vaccinated. When, when people come into the ER and you're convinced they, obviously because of testing and maybe some initial symptoms, what's the initial treatment you're still giving that you find works best? Well, um, if they're not if they're not hypoxic. In other words, their oxygen level is okay, and uh, the vital signs, everything else looks good. And we get a chest X-ray, and we don't see anything on the chest X-ray. Essentially, we send them home and ask them to quarantine and to follow certain parameters. If we start getting a fever, a cough gets worse, obviously shortness of breath, anything else, you need to come back and see us because it's. Uh, where you start with a disease, it may, many people will progress to something more serious, and that's when we make an intervention. So when someone is hypoxic, they have a low oxygen level. Those are individuals that we bring into the hospital. We immediately give them dexamethasone, which has been shown to be very helpful uh, with someone with COVID who has hypoxemia. Um, we give them zinc and vitamin C. And vitamin D, there's some pretty good studies that think that uh, vitamin D uh, is helpful in uh, preventing the, the uh, replication of the virus. So those are the basics. And then remdesivir, if uh, the authorities feel that the hospitalized patient needs it, if they're progressing. And people seem to be doing much better, much, much better. We didn't have all those tools when this... We when didn't have started. all the tools when, yeah. when it first started. So we've learned a lot about the virus. There's much more to learn, but we're, we're, we're making headway. Well, we want people to know if they get positive for COVID, it's not an automatic death sentence. That's correct. It actually, oh, uh, well, it hasn't been. I mean, if you, there's always the outliers. It doesn't matter what virus you throw out there. There's always going to be people who are going to get the virus and they're going to have a bad outcome. You see that. But the large majority of people who have had COVID have done well. We hear a lot about the deaths, and obviously that's very important, but we also don't hear about all the thousands and thousands of people who have had it and have done well and have recovered. So that's oh, important. Good. Let's, let's hold on to that thought. We're going to take a short break. We're talking to Dr. Ann Carroll, an emergency room doctor, talking about COVID and what she's seeing out there at the hospitals right now. We're going to be back. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to Nick Phillips with another segment of The Advocate. 
We're talking about COVID-19 and what's actually going on in the emergency rooms with emergency room doctor, Dr. Ann Carroll. Dr. Carroll, thank you as always for joining us. Thank you, Nick. No, we're, we're talking about uh, frontline presentations of people with COVID. And one of the demographic groups have been the 16 over group, with or without underlying problems. Um, how is that group? I know statistically they seem to be taking the brunt yet when they get it. Uh, how does it appear to you in your emergency what you actually witnessed? Well, we're seeing we're seeing a lot more of the younger population coming in with the, the with the virus testing positive and with symptoms. And interestingly enough, the symptom that I'm seeing more and more frequently is a loss of taste and smell. In the past, it was fever and cough. Now we're seeing a lot of loss of taste, uh, loss of sense of taste and smell. In the elderly, uh, those over 60, still it, it remains cough, shortness of breath, uh, seems to be the presenting um, symptom. Fever is, is only occurs in about 25% of people when they first get COVID. So that's not something you can necessarily hang your hat on. Um, you just have to listen to their symptoms and a, and a clinical hunch and to test them for COVID. Um, those are the individuals and uh, that need to get the vaccine. It's not a mandatory vaccine, obviously, but like influenza, their patient population that's greatest risk for getting it and having a bad outcome, getting it, meaning the virus, and having a bad outcome. I always like asking this question about what you see concerning uh, people in the area of COVID and the science of COVID and keeping COVID from spreading. Because we've seen we have our whole society here in the United States split into two basic groups. The pro-science people, I'll call them, that believe in separation, washing hands, masking, and so on. And then we have another group, almost half of the population in this country, who really emphasize their constitutional rights to not be controlled. And they don't have to do this stuff. Are, are you seeing that dichotomy play out when you see people walking into the ER? Correct. There are still people saying, oh, you know, it's just like any other virus. And I said, yeah, except it's bad. <laughs> I mean, it's very bad. There's an interesting study that the Navy did uh, with some Marines, because they can do that. And it's a good controlled study. And you're talking about transmission of disease. They had new recruits who uh, were tested at home, and they had to stay in quarantine for two weeks. And if they were negative, then they went to wherever, you know, uh, for to wherever they're going for basic training. They were tested when they got there. And then they divided the groups, and they had one group who was COVID negative, and they were quarantined in a certain area, and they were, they were tested on a scheduled testing, whether they had symptoms or not. So they got there the first day, it's negative. Three days later, test again, negative, that sort of thing. These individuals also shared a common bathroom with other people, other Marines that weren't in the study, and they shared a common eating area. And they, they did social distancing in the common eating area. What they found was that it seemed that in the common eating area, despite social distancing, that was the greatest source of transmission of the disease because these particles are aerosolized and they stay in the air and they float around the, the enclosed area. 
I found that very interesting. And people say all the time, no, you know, it's not transmitted that way. Well, now we're getting more and more data that shows that these aerosolized viral particles stay around. And people are breathing them in, and they may be 50 feet away, which when you look at uh, lockdowns, and when they did that in New York, so many people that were in lockdowns came out and they were positive for the virus and they couldn't figure it out. It is because they might be living in apartments and they have a common heating or air conditioning or vent uh, system, and they were recirculating the air. So the guy who lives down on the third floor who has COVID, and that air is circulating, may go up to the seventh floor and affect somebody who had no exposure, but it's coming in from this uh, recirculated air. So that's a big problem. And that's why some of the authorities say, you know, they want to close down the restaurants. Well, if you're out in the fresh air and sunshine, that's much better. But an enclosed area with poor circulation is a big risk for COVID or any virus. For I that can matter. see that. Mm-hmm. Yes, so I, I, I just, very... uh, it, it is that you read that because I just read an article about the start of COVID in a restaurant in Korea where an infected couple were eating and they infected someone 20 feet away with about five minutes of exposure. And it was attributed to the aerosolization of the COVID, number one, but mostly the HVAC or the air circulation system. It had one of those systems that just circulated the air along the ceiling and down onto the next group. And they concluded right. the same thing, that indoor dining where you have the distance, time, and circulation of air that will pass it. So I haven't seen anything else actually formally saying that uh, the COVID can pass in something less than droplet form, like an aerosol version of COVID. But uh, have, well, has anyone like the CDC concluded that yet formally? Well, in that that, that one study with the Marines, they, they felt that it was uh, the risk factor was in that large, poorly circulated uh, common eating area and that the virus was aerosolized because those individuals who were kept in quarantine, that was the only area where they were exposed to anybody else. And they were social distancing, but everybody was eating. You know, um, I, I just thought that was incredibly interesting. Uh, that that well, would be- adds a lot. Well, the, uh, um, what, what, what is your view toward the future trajectory of where we are with the uh, vaccine? With people taking the vaccine, with the uh, the plan on how to distribute it to the various levels of entitlement, I guess I would call it, to get the most necessary people vaccinated first. Uh, how do you how do you view or what do you think is going to happen over the next several months? Well, I think obviously the my feeling is, and I think it's uh, what a kind society does: we vaccinate those that are greatest risk, and with these vaccines, whether it's the a Pfizer or the Moderna, uh, Moderna, it's uh, ages 16 and older. So we're first going to go to the nursing homes and we're going to go to the assisted living, looking at the individuals who have significant comorbidities who can't take care of themselves. Uh, children over the age of 16 are in these developmental group homes. All of these individuals should get the vaccine first. They need to be protected. Then the first responders who are taking care of, of all these individuals, I think, should be next. Um, hopefully that uh, 
they will uh, in quickly uh, provide more vaccines so whomever wants it can get it quickly. You know, it sounds silly to say it quickly, quickly, but as fast right. as possible. Um, but I, from what I've read, it seems like by April, which sounds like a long time away, but by April they should have uh, as many millions of vaccines as they need to inoculate whomever wants to have the vaccine. You know, the thing with the vaccine, there are a lot of uh, individuals out there who don't want to take the vaccine because they think it's a very strange kind of vaccine that's going to alter your genetic uh, makeup. And that's not how the vaccine works. It's an mRNA, and it gets into the cytoplasm of the cell, not into the nucleus where the DNA is. And it's just producing these spike proteins and pushing them out, and it bonds to the outside of the cell. And the immune system recognizes that protein as being foreign, and that's how and it makes antibodies. That's how it works. There's nothing to do with the DNA. We don't use a live virus. It's, it's actually it's a beautiful uh, use of science to form this. Uh, it's a harmless piece of protein. It's called a spike protein, and they inject it in the vac with a vaccine. And it, it's it's on the surface of the cell after it does it, and the cell actually destroys the initial protein that's injected when it gets into the cytoplasm it, uh, after it replicates it. Does it. We don't know how long it's going to last. I mean, we don't know how long the immunity is with this. Is this going to be something three months, six months, a year? Nobody knows yet mm -hmm. because it's still too soon. Well, I think that uh, it's a hopeful note that uh, the vaccine we anticipate great things to happen with the vaccine, and uh, we want everybody to stay careful and safe. And if they do have some of these problems we talked about, to get to the emergency room. Dr. Carroll, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. We'll have you on again, hopefully with more uh, hopeful news and better results coming out at the vaccine. Uh, and I just, I just, I just want to, to advise individuals who get the vaccine, don't think that you can just get the vaccine and then everything is fine. You still have to wear your mask, wash your hands, because you don't have immediate immunity to COVID. You could still be a carrier. You could still transmit it. So it's baby steps that we're making to get control of this disease. So we still all have to do be good stewards of the community. A wise, wise advice. Dr. Carroll, thank you again for joining us tonight, and we'll have you on again to get another update. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Nick. Thank you, and thank you. We're mm -hmm. going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Cleveland Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments tonight, we're going to be talking about COVID, and we're going to be talking about the havoc that COVID is raising here in Cuyahoga County. With us tonight is our returning guest, Nan Baker, who's a council person for the Cuyahoga County government. Nan, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Nick. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. We've, we've known each other for how many years now? Do I dare yes. count? But, I dare um, count. <laughs> in, uh, let's, let's not tonight. Uh, okay. But with regard to uh, Cuyahoga County and COVID, COVID uh, is unprecedented in our lifetimes as far as 
shaking our entire culture, not just the government, not yeah. just the medical facilities, not just our private lives or social media. How are we doing in Cuyahoga County, and, and what's your take and your perspective on what's happening with COVID? Well, you know, it, it has been uh, quite a journey, and we've talked about this uh, back in March when we really realized how serious this was and shut down all of our, our businesses and told everyone to stay home and opened back up in a limited way in, in May and June and got through the summer. And here we are now going through uh, finished fall and going through the winter. We just seems like our life is always uh, centered around uh, this COVID-19 coronavirus. And that hasn't changed. I, I do think, though, that we have learned a lot about this virus, uh, much more aware than we were back in uh, the early days of March. But still, uh, there's a lot yet that we probably will find out later um, as we recover. And when I say recover, uh, we are very optimistic of the vaccine coming into our lives. So I am very optimistic for 2021. Um, I know that we are now helping those that are most vulnerable and helping safety forces and the frontline workers, the healthcare workers, uh, those that are um, perhaps vulnerable uh, because of other conditions they may have. So those have always been the people that we worry the most about and we need to get control of, of that. Uh, but once that happens, and I think that will happen by April or May of 2021, then the rest of us, uh, if we choose to, uh, will also be able to take that vaccine. And I believe, I truly believe we are going to get our lives back. Um, this I heard from the Lorraine County Board of Health Director in a mutual Chamber of Commerce meeting that uh -huh. uh, this is not like the flu. This is not you take a shot every year and it comes back. You take this once. And that should be the only time you take it. Uh, he said there could be in five years a booster because of, you know, maybe new revelations, but nothing like what you would think you'd have to continually take. And once we get up to about 75% of the people taking the vaccine, we should have herd immunity. And it will be a memory. So I'm hanging on to that. <laughs> That is, uh, no, very that's coming from a health director, yes. And uh, I'm, I'm hanging on to that. And, of course, in the interim, here we are uh, still wearing masks and keeping our distancing. And we recently heard from the executive and the mayor of Cleveland that the stay-at-home order from 10 o'clock p.m. till 5 in the morning is again in place until the middle of January. So, you know, I don't see where January and February are going to be easy months for the majority of us, but better days ahead, you know, and we as Americans and as Ohioans, we are optimistic people, and we know if there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel, we're going to reach it, and we will, uh, we will all survive this, and um, I feel very sympathetic for those families that have lost loved ones that this virus has taken. But um, but better have, days are ahead, have, and I look forward I agree, to it. I agree. Have, have we seen, or from your perspective, and, and I ask this from the standpoint that as a county council representative, uh, you're the lightning rod 
where information, new information and important information is directed to you and the rest of the council. So uh, from your perspective, have you heard uh, any indications that we're, we are starting to make a turn to see some control over the virus or are you still at this particular moment seems to be out of control? It, uh, at this particular moment, uh, we are, as described by our Board of Health Directors, we are in the middle of a surge. And this is the third wave that we have seen in, in their prediction. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just something we have to, to deal with. Uh, Thanksgiving, they thought, was going to be a super spreader with people coming together, um, maybe limited more than they used to, but still concerning. And actually, it turned out not to be the case. And the only explanation is that we're on the backside of this um, third wave and that, uh, you know, going into the rest of winter and first of the year, if we can get this vaccine in place, we may avoid a fourth uh, wave of this virus. But everyone should be on alert. This is not a time to relax. Uh, it's a time to be optimistic, but uh, we still are in this war, and we need to make sure that we take the precautions that we take, be careful about who you get too close to, if you don't know mm -hmm. them or their habits, uh, just uh, be forewarned. Yeah, it's, we're not out of it well, yet. Well, well, sometimes, not sometimes, but almost every day, um, I, I view the reaction of the general public to the COVID-19 as being split into two distinct camps. We have the one yeah. camp that emphasizes the science and looks at the uh, no contact orders and the recommendations for masking and so forth as a matter of right. science, and they live by that. Then we have almost 50% mm -hmm. of things sometimes of the rest of the population who feels like we're independent Americans, we have our rights, I can do what I want. How, yeah. how do you see that from the county standpoint? Because we just put out, I saw on the 17th of December, another extension of the stay-at-home right. order, which is right. not going to be enforced by police or anything, but it's based on the science. How do we reconcile, or how does the county look at reconcile these two different groups? The, I call them the believers in the COVID and the non-believers right. in the COVID. How do I we think that the, right, I think that, you know, from, from what I'm hearing and my experience since I've been in, in political office is that, you know, our political leaders tend to uh, err on the side of caution. So they're going to err on the side of caution and say, I'd rather put these measures in place and have you with us next year than to take the chance and say, well, it's, it's, it's up to you what it is that you would like to do. And uh, the, the unfortunate part of that is that you yourself could be a spreader to others. So if you choose not to wear a mask or not to worry about who you're socializing with, you yourself could be a carrier um, and be asymptomatic and give it to someone you don't intend to. And that's the balancing act, I think, that our government uh, officials try to reconcile is that it's not just you, you could be hurting others. And that's, uh, that's always been, you could take, take it back to your grandparents. You can take it back to those in nursing homes. You can take it back 
to those that perhaps have illnesses that you're not even aware of that they have, that their immune system may not be as good as yours. And that, I think, is what they balance um, their decisions on. You know, I, I know that public has lost some trust. You wonder with all the shutdowns and everyone wearing masks and all the restrictions and restaurants compromising, you'd think that the cases would be lower. You'd think that we would be in a place where we see the, the fruits of our labor, but that's really not the case. They're higher than ever, and uh, they're really not explaining that too well as to why only to keep doing what we're doing, and that this is a third wave of this virus that's unexplainable. And that's that's where that's what we're been that's what I've been told. Um, now, some of the things it's hard been, to get people to well, follow. It's hard to get people to follow because I don't know whether uh, this has been too politicized. That it's a right. political right that people are exercising uh, to right. not go along with the scientific recommendation. Yet I've read some right. articles where eating inside of a restaurant uh, where we have uh, air circulating units and closed confines that the virus can spread a lot more easily than we thought. So it really becomes a matter of each individual to protect themselves particularly they know and love from spreading right. particular virus. Right. Uh, there's lots of regard to strategies. We've been dealing with this for nine months now, but uh, I noticed it's time to take a break. Let's take a break here now. We're talking to Nan Baker, kind of council person for Cuyahoga County Council. We're talking about COVID and what's happening here in Cuyahoga County. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away, and we'll be back with Nan. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Stephen McPhillips City with our final segment of the Advocate for Tonight. Uh, we'd like to thank, again, Nan Baker from the Cuyahoga County Council joining us tonight to uh, let us know what's happening at the county level on uh, this end of 2020. Nan, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It, uh, it's always a pleasure to be here and kind of give a, a uh, inside view of County Council and some of the things that we're working on. And there is more to life than this um, virus. And we uh, we yeah, are working yeah. well, on our... Let's, well, let's get into that because we, we talked in the last segment about the virus. But there's a lot of business that the county still has to perform. Things are still happening. Right. What, are the big, what are the big issues that you guys are dealing with uh, right now in addition to COVID? Well, we... Yes. Well, you know, the Health and Human Services levy passed, and it passed with a an additional increase. So those dollars are now being considered to be spent. Uh, along with that, we also have the um, the opiate settlement money that uh, we receive from the drug uh, makers, and that money right now is under consideration to spend. And we're talking millions of dollars. Also, the Federal CARES Act that many of our cities have received and the county uh, through the state, uh, through the federal government, millions of dollars have been spent in trying to help those get through these difficult times, even to where we're remodeling all of our county buildings 
so that we have touchless uh, type of um, elevators and and distancing type of um, waiting in line and and shields between offices and it's just uh, quite a undertaking. Uh, we did just pass a 9.2 million dollar uh, contract with the Adams Board, and that of course is the Alcohol, Drug, Addiction, and Mental Health Services Board, and uh, we will be using the uh, East 55th building that is operated by the uh, Oriana House. And that will be a new program where when police pull over or, or take unto or under arrest a uh, misdemeanor drug-related um, crime, instead of taking them to jail, and this would be a nonviolent crime, they would be going then to the Oriana House for drug treatment or mental health treatment, it would be determined then what they need in order to get them back into a life that they can be productive. And uh, that'll be uh, an interesting pilot program to uh, see just whether or not uh, that works. Uh, the experts has told us that it's been done in other states, and it is a program that we will all be thankful to have. And if it, we get good reports back, we're talking about actually building a diversion center for those to go to to get the help they need instead of automatically sending them to jail, which they then serve their time and get right back into the habits they had before they were arrested. So that is a do, new do development. Any, do we have any range of numbers of how many people are affected by this program? Well, is that you know, a large the program or hundreds of thousands. The, Right. Well, the, the temporary diversion center that will be on East 55th Street will allow for 50 beds. That's a 50-bed turnover. They don't expect people to stay there more than two weeks, and then they will be referred to an agency or a place where they will go and get further treatment. So it's the issue of, of drug addiction and mental health is bigger than that in our jail population. But those that have created a, you know, a felony uh, or a violent crime will not participate in this, and that takes out quite a bit of the um, of the jail population, which is overcrowded because of some of these issues. So we're trying to get the population down in the jails by getting the non-violent people help instead of incarcerated. Some alternative uh, programs for them. You know, months ago we talked about uh, problems with the jail and the dangers of prisoners and what they're facing in the jail. Uh, yeah. How is the jail now as far as uh, safety for people who are incarcerated? Well, you know, just as uh, mirrored from the outside world, uh, they are managing the virus the best they can. They certainly understand it better when a... Um, inmate comes in, they are isolated and tested. And through that testing, uh, they remain isolated until they're sure that they do not have the, uh, the coronavirus. So it is, a, um, it is a process now that they go through to make sure and try to keep the population down. It, even with those precautions, they still have a number of uh, inmates that have come down with the coronavirus. In fact, 
the governor has allowed um, the uh, state patrol to come in and aid the jails so that uh, we can get better management. So it's, um, it, again, it, it, is, it comes in waves. They were headed down to zero at one point. We were all kind of, wow, that's great. You've got, and then they put all, all right. these precautions in place. And here we are now dealing with a, um, an outbreak that needs uh, outside support. Yeah. Oh, my. You know, another topic mm -hmm. that goes hand in hand with the county is the revenue side. Again, going back to the dreaded COVID, uh, revenues have to be impacted somehow with the county. How are we doing revenue-wise? Well, the revenue, of course, you know, the general fund revenue is certainly been impacted. Uh, ironically, there are so many other pockets of, of money that, you know, many of what's in front of us now is being taken care of, whether we have this opiate, $215 million in opiate dollars, or CARES Act of over $250 million in federal funding to take care of uh, those that are impacted by the um, virus. And then, of course, we have the HHS money, the Health and Human Services money that got passed earlier this year. And that is, has its own place of helping, helping others. The, um, you know, property taxes down, sales taxes down. Those are the kind of general fund, keep the roads and bridges and, and normal operations going. That's where uh, we have felt some impact. But it hasn't been as bad as we anticipated it would be. So if we have a decent first quarter, especially second and third quarter of next year, we certainly uh, may see better days ahead. Uh, it's not as uh, impactful, I don't think, as first thought of. And much of that has to do with other funds that have been able to help people in places that we probably would have had to step in. Are the... Uh... County officials, are they actually thinking in terms of recovery and what's going to happen when the vaccines take their normal course, the scientific course, and that is knocking down the prevalence of COVID? Uh, and we will start reengaging with business and with the economy. What is sort of the county doing looking at those days when we finally get there? Are there some plans being thought about? There are plans. I mean, the uh, workforce training, we just had a, um, a meeting by the Greater, um, the Greater Cleveland Partnership and um, Jumpstart, those organizations in Cleveland that uh, are trying to help those get the training that they need for job opportunities. It, it is difficult. You know, you work in silos right now because what's in front of you is so immediate that it's hard to see outside of that. But yes, to answer the question, I think that we all know that better days are ahead and people are going to be needing those type of services and will be needing to get back to work and take care of their families. And um, how quickly that will happen, we're, you know, we'll all live to see it. Uh, but it is, um, we are trying to, to think ahead to a day where we left off in January of 2020 uh, with a lot of high expectations and um, high opportunities. Oh, very, very that, 
Well, it sounds like we're in agreement, I think, uh, from all I've been hearing, is that we're looking toward a spring of 2021 as some significant yes. changes being on the way. So, Nan Baker, yes. thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate, as always, you letting us know what's going on here in Cuyahoga County. And, uh, You're we welcome. To... I look... Go ahead. I just, I, I look oh. forward to coming back. Uh, each time I come back, it seems like the news has some more optimistic uh, outlooks to it. So I hope the next time I talk to you, we have even more to share. I agree, and let, let us be optimistic. Nan Baker, thank yes. you so much for joining us. And You're thank welcome, you for and Merry Christmas to you. And Merry Christmas. Well, take care, everyone, uh, and thank you for listening tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station, so between now and then. Have a good week. Good night. And I sat and watched the sands of our sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea, with nothing to do until morning.